We would normally in our service um, take some time uh, to receive our offering and as I have indicated to you, uh, we're not going to do that physically but I think it's appropriate nevertheless to pause for just a few moments and to acknowledge in this space the generosity of God to us and even though we're not going to pass the offering bags around or anything like that, a number of you have committed to supporting the church by giving electronically. We appreciate that. There are a number who are still just chatting to me about how we do that physically and I'm more than happy to have that conversation. But in the context of our worship, let's just pause for a few moments and acknowledge God's gift of love to us. And if you are a member of our congregation and you have been in the habit of giving, let's just remember the opportunity that God has given to us to give in that space with our finances, but not only with our finances, with our time and energy and resources as well. Reminded, of course, that God is the one who is ultimately the giver, the giver of all things. Uh, So let me invite you into a moment of quiet reflection and then uh, we'll go to prayer before we come to the word this morning. Let's just pause and pray together. Lord God, you are the source of life and all things have their origin their sustaining, their their source in you. Everything that has been created has come from your hands. And we read in the scripture with the, the, the accounts that we find there of you creating and taking joy in your creation. We thank you that of all of the things that have been created, you made us in your image and gave us the capacity to relate to one another and relate to you in a manner that is unique across all of creation and so here as your people today we gather we give you thanks for the opportunity to be back together again we thank you for the good gifts that you give us of people who are able to serve us even as we gather for the opportunity of seeing friends and family for the opportunity of being in corporate worship which so energizes us and touches our hearts for the opportunity to sit under your word to consider what it is that you are saying to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place today. We ask that we might have ears that are open to what you are saying to us. Let us take off the masks that we wear, the pretense that we sometimes carry before us that others see, the pride that gets in the way of us being humble and vulnerable before you. And today hear what you are saying to us as individuals and to us as a church. Lord God, we want to thank you that as we have paused in this last couple of moments for the gift of being able to give. And though we don't physically receive our offering in this space, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to give and for the manner in which you have continued to bless us over this past season of life in our church not just to get by but with abundance Lord and that just so characterises who you are. Teach us to trust you in these spaces we pray and to walk day by day in faithfulness with you, the God who is a giving God. And Lord too as we come to your word again this morning we ask that you would speak through it to us. Lord help me get out of the way so that your spirit can speak to the hearts of those who are here. Let us not see what's happening around us but let's Let us see what you, Lord Jesus, want to say. 
Uh, we commit ourselves and our Father to have open ears and open hearts ready for your spirit to speak to us, ready for your spirit to challenge us, ready for your spirit to change us and grow us. So God, uh, move amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if um, I could get some indication, just as I get myself a little organised here, how many people here... Um, have at some stage in life um, had responsibility for putting out the rubbish bin. Just pop your hand up. If you've taken the rubbish bin down to the road or out to the street, fantastic. How many people have actually seen the rubbish being collected as the truck has come by or back in the days, um, in some of those photos I showed you earlier, they used to just be a silver bin. Thank you, put your hands down. How many of you have actually followed the truck to see where your rubbish goes to. I don't see any hands. That's kind of interesting because in our context, we don't take much notice of happen what happens once uh, that rubbish is gone, right? But that's not true in every context. There's many parts of the world where people have to assume responsibility for their rubbish. And it was true for us uh, while we were working overseas there in Papua New Guinea, there was no regular rubbish collection. There was a rubbish collection because all of our tins, not that we had many tins, they were supposed to be washed and crushed and they were put in a, in a sort of a central collection place and then some of our guys would come with a tractor and trailer and take those and dump them in a hole down by the river, environmentally friendly. Uh, but the rest of the stuff we had to deal with ourselves. So plastics, papers, cardboard, it all had to be burnt. And very fortunately, we had a pyromaniac in our home who just loved burning all of that stuff. And no mind the acrid smoke that would be kind of billowing around the place. Uh, any vegetable scraps, food scraps, that kind of stuff, would have to go into a pit. Now, around the, the place that we were living, what we called the campus, there were a number of pits. They were often shared between neighbours. And they were generally just sort of shallow holes that had been dug back in the, the Neanderthal times. Uh, that had gradually filled up with grass and rubbish over the years and people kind of kept throwing stuff in. It wasn't the most sanitary kind of arrangement because they weren't generally all that deep <coughs> and they were, they were attracting flies and they were very attractive to some of the local dogs that would come and they would carry stuff out and there'd be rubbish left here, there and everywhere and they were a great breeding place for rats and let me tell you, there were some pretty impressive rats. They were like rats on steroids, no wonder. And I thought, this is a wholly unsatisfactory situation. And so, because I was kind of working a little bit in the community development side as well, we decided to dig a new pit. And in doing that, I took on some of the, um, uh, the, the skills of my forebears, because here, the man standing is my paternal grandfather working at the Homeward Bound Mine. Some of you might even know where that is out there, beyond Brurong. Uh, we took on some of those skills and Josh, who was about seven at the time, one Saturday, we set to work digging a new pit. And let me tell you, it was a pit to end all pits. We made it about a metre wide, about 50 centimetres, sorry, a metre long, 50 centimetres wide and we dug down. We didn't have a plan when we started but I did have a ladder and the ladder was about seven feet, 2.1 metres in length. I'd built myself a ladder and we dug and we dug and we dug and we got to a certain point where I'd go down and dig, dig, dig 
and then I'd climb out the ladder and I'd send Josh down uh, because he would then fill the bucket up and I would pull the bucket up kind of like a human windlass and we ended up with a hole that was nearly three metres deep. It was an impressive kind of a pit. Here's uh, a young man who, uh, um, in this photo, I think may have even been standing on the top of the ladder, which just gives you some idea of how impressive that pit was. And it was very interesting to be able to uh, stand and look down and see this achievement. And it was even more interesting to climb down into that pit and experience the closeted nature of being in a hole. Some of you might have done that. It's a weird place to be because you're standing down there with very little room around you and there's kind of wet earth. It has that sort of sour smell to it, you know, that kind of smell that is sort of rotting vegetation, damp clay kind of a smell. And here it is right in front of you. And here it is right in front of you if you face this way. And here it is right in front of you if you face the other way. And the only way that you can actually uh, see hope is to look up and see the light at the top of the pit and know that if the ladder's still there, you've got some hope of getting out. It was fun to be in the pit, but I tell you what, as one who's not super good with claustrophobic spaces, um, it was nice to get out of the pit again. And that story resonated very much with me, that memory resonated very much with me when I was reading the psalm that Matt read for us earlier. For the psalmist says here, and some translations use this word, out of the depths or out of the pit, I cry to you, Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, I put my hope, uh, sorry, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is a very interesting psalm. It's an interesting psalm for two reasons. One is that it's one of the psalms of ascent that the people did sing as they were going up to Zion to the feasts but it's also one of about seven psalms across uh, the the uh, books of the psalms uh, that is a penitential psalm now that means a psalm of penitence or or repentance asking for forgiveness and you see that in those words it's rather an interesting psalm too because it's one of the very few places in the old testament and you can check this out later if you like one of the very few places in the old testament where where forgiveness is explicitly mentioned. You know, sometimes people get a little bit, uh, not so much confused, but uh, it's hard to hold the tension sometimes between what we see of God and his love and forgiveness in the New Testament and the Old Testament, which is so much judgment and war and all that kind of stuff, right? Is it the same God? I've been asked that question. And it's a good question on the basis of some of that evidence. But here we see in this psalm a very explicit a clear statement that god is a forgiving god with you there is full forgiveness and it suggests the consistency in god's character across both the old and the new testament the psalm starts uh, with an expression that ought to be fairly uh, uh, 
attention-grabbing, I suspect, because one of the realities of the human condition is that we've all probably at some time in our life been in the pit. We've all probably at some time in our life been down in the depths. I remember uh, hearing a speaker one time say something along these lines, if you've not had this experience, the only reason that you haven't had this experience is because you haven't lived long enough. It's one of the realities of the human condition that there will be a time where we'll find ourselves in the pit. And it can be because of all sorts of things. I was brainstorming some of these myself and there's any number of them. It might be because of a deterioration in, uh, in our health, for example, or a, a physical ailment or, or a deterioration in our mental health. It might be because of the observation of the deterioration we see in somebody else or an experience that we walk through with someone who's very close to us in the same kind of way. It could be because of the unexpected breakdown in a marriage, the loss of intimacy with someone that we've been so familiar with. It could be because of the death of somebody, the grief that's associated with that kind of loss. It can happen because of addiction. There are addictions that will drive us into the pit because we become so enamoured by what it is that we're addicted to, we lose perspective on everything else. It can be because of bullying in the workplace or unresolved conflict in a relationship. It can be because life just doesn't work out the way that we thought it was going to work. It can be just about anything but at some stage in life it will be inevitable that we'll find ourselves in the pit and when you're in that place it can be just like being in that big deep hole that I talked about a few moments ago. No matter which way we look the walls seem to press in upon us, we lose perspective, we can't see any light or any hope and we just don't know what to do. And one of the things that this psalm actually says is when we're in that space the only thing that we can do is to look up to God and say, Lord, help me in this space. And we'll unpack a little bit about what the psalm actually talks about in that space in a few moments. One of the things that I have said to you on a number of occasions, and I'll keep on saying this, uh, I think uh, the reality that we see in this psalm of a psalmist crying out to God from the depths uh, actually confirms the truth of the Bible. How so? Because the Bible speaks about true humanity, doesn't it? As I've said on many occasions, and I'll keep on saying this, the Bible does not sugarcoat Christianity. It does not say, come to Jesus and life will just be a wonderful free walk in the park. There are many blessings in this space, but there is also going to be pain. There's also going to be difficulties. There will be times, even walking with the Lord, we'll find ourselves in the pit for whatever reason. And it's in that space that God calls us to exercise faith. In fact, uh, in, in this particular psalm, we can, by reading the psalm, discover for ourselves what it was that drove the psalmist into the depths, into the pit. In this case, it's actually guilt. For the psalmist, it's, uh, it's guilt over sin. If you have a look there in uh, verse 3, for example, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? I'm feeling this weight of my sin, I'm feeling this rejection uh, the, the, the weight of my rejection of you, God, I'm feeling guilty in this space. And so we see here someone who's wrestling with something which has been commonly experienced across humanity. 
Guilt, though, if we think about guilt for a few moments, is a curiously unpopular emotion, isn't it? In fact, I suspect that we live in a world where a lot of people are putting a lot of effort into trying to live guilt-free. In fact, one of the messages a lot of our younger generations hearing is, you don't need to experience guilt, you shouldn't feel guilt. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a world without guilt? I'm not 100% sure about that statement. In fact, I'm rather convinced that the only people that I know in this world who live without guilt are actually sociopaths. People who can express no empathy for anyone else, no sympathy for another person. And I put it to you in actual fact that guilt is an emotion that's been given to us by God. Have you ever thought about that? Guilt is actually an emotion given to us by God, built into our emotional life to help prevent destruction in relationships with God and with others and even with ourselves. And it's through this negative emotion that we can experience positive emotions. Think this through logically with me for a moment. If you feel guilty about something, there is the opportunity in that space to do something to remedy it, right? And so live into a more positive place to become more accountable, to become more transparent, to become more open, to become healthier in those places. Guilt is not just something that makes us feel bad and so should be avoided at all costs, as some people do indeed believe, but rather it has the capacity, uh, like a beacon, if you like, to drive us to a better life. It can act as a catalyst to free us from behaviours that enslave us. Rather interestingly, Viktor Frankl, who is an author, he was also a Jewish Holocaust survivor, uh, Frankl spoke about uh, this concept of the, what he called the tragic optimism. There are three uh, tragic things, the tragic triad of life, pain, guilt and death. This, this might sound like a really kind of heavy thing to talk about in church. But Frankl actually said, if these things are handled properly, they can spur a person on to finding meaning and purpose in life. Frankel said, through guilt people have potential to change for the better. Healthy guilt is a gatekeeper and a boundary maker. It helps us discover where we shouldn't go and what we shouldn't do. It helps us to make amends when we do cause pain and related hardships. Guilt helps us to find our way back towards what is right and repair torn portions of our life. And I would say, along with Frankel, that my experience has been this, the people who often walk most deeply with God are the ones who've experienced the deepest pain in that journey of life. Quite some years ago, when I was at school, and I alluded to some of this um, in the kids' message, kind of felt like I was saying, when I was young, which is a long time ago, but... Um, I was at school, I was relatively new in, in this particular school and so a little bit bereft of friends and an, another guy started at school. His name was John. And John and I kind of started to hit it off together and uh, we, you know, talked about life and where do you live and all that sort of stuff. Now you have to understand the school that I was at at the time uh, was in close to the city and so many of the students lived in fancy places like... Um, Camberwell or Kew or you know all those kind of they had two-story houses some of them very very fancy 
We lived out in Ferntree Gully, which I thought was fantastic, and there was nothing wrong with where we lived or our house whatsoever. But John was asking, <coughs> you know, where do you live? And for reasons that I cannot explain other than puerile stupidity, a moment of, uh, what do you call it, one of those mind fades, a brain fade, I said to him, oh, I live on a golf course. <laughs> a golf course! Where did that come from? Well, actually, um, as is the case with all lies, there was an element of truth. Because we had a relatively big backyard. And I was responsible for mowing the backyard. My brother always did the front yard, I always did the backyard. I liked to do the backyard because I liked it neat and tidy. And I, you know, I'm a bit like that with mowing. And, and I decided, with such a big backyard, let's make use of it. And so I had mowed myself a little fairway with a, with a, a, a green. In fact, there were three of them. And so you could play a little... You remember those little golf balls with the holes in them, the plastic ones? You could get out there with a pitching wedge and just sort of pitch it around and, and there were three holes. You started here, you went here and then around the back and down the bottom of the yard and then back again. It was fantastic. If you went around six times, that's an 18-hole golf course. <laughs> and there were hazards. There was the rough, there was the pool, you know, water hazard, all that sort of stuff. And so I said to John, I live on a golf course. And John got on the train, a different one to me, and off he went. And then in that space, and I can remember it to this day, I thought to myself, what have I done? What have I just done? Now, I laugh about it now, but to be brutally honest with you, as I think about it, even this space, I've, <laughs> I've never told anybody this story, and here it is on YouTube. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it sounds funny, but boy, I tell you what, the weight of grief and guilt that came upon my shoulders in that space was unbelievable. I didn't know, here I was, a young Christian man, you know, trying to walk in a godly way, and I've just sold the biggest whopper I've ever sold in my life to a guy who genuinely believed it. He went off thinking, wow, this guy lives on a golf course, fantastic. What am I going to do if he comes and says, can we go and play golf? I don't know what happened after that. John didn't stay at that school for very long, which was probably God's mercy being demonstrated to me <laughs> because he never did ask. But even as I was sitting there in the quiet of... Um, well, actually, this week it was in the quiet of my garage writing this sermon, uh, I can still remember the pain of that moment. And I can still remember the weight that just came upon me, the condemnation that I felt, the guilt that I carried. And though it is a funny and light story to tell, there have been other things that I look back on and I think, oh my goodness, what a weight this guilt uh, brought upon me. What a weight guilt does place upon us. Some of you, uh, though you might smile and laugh at that story, you possibly are thinking of circumstances that you've been involved in even things that today still resonate with you, that are weighing upon you. Because so many of us are in that space where we look back at stuff and we experience guilt because we've just not acted in an appropriate manner, we've not repented of that, we haven't dealt with it. It might be because of some kind of secret addiction that nobody else knows about but you. 
But every now and again, the guilt associated with that weighs down upon you like a heavy load upon your shoulders, a decision that was made years ago that's had consequences that have echoed through the years. I remember talking to a lady one time who almost at the point of tears as I look back at some of the things that I did, even just raising my children, gosh, I feel so guilty in that space. Something that you did and someone else was blamed for and you never fixed it, you never actually said, no, you know what, it wasn't that person, it was me, because if you'd done that, it would have lost face in that space and there's guilt. A harsh word that's never been retracted. A moment of inappropriate intimacy with someone who is not your spouse, a deception that has not been corrected or the regrets that sometimes comes when there's been a fracture in a relationship and you've not acted to deal with it and the guilt sits upon us like bags of sand or lead or something and just pushes it down and it's just like we're back in that pit sometimes and, uh, and we're looking at this wall. I remember speaking to a young woman once a few years ago who uh, said to me, you know, David, when I was young, I used to just live for myself. I did whatever I liked. Life was before me, you know, no cares, no worries whatsoever. Do whatever I like, whenever I like. Freedom to do this, freedom to do that. I fell pregnant in this space. What do I do? I have an abortion. That's what I do because it's just a few cells in my body, you know. It's not a baby. I, it's all about me. And then some years later she started to come closer to the Lord and the Lord started to convict her about some of this stuff and she sat with me in that space and said, I feel so guilty because now I realise that what I did was so wrong. I didn't know it at the time but now I do. And I don't know what to do with this guilt. I feel like it's weighing on me. This wasn't just a few cells, it was a baby. What do I do? And we walked through a process of uh, repentance in that space and uh, asking and seeking forgiveness from God and healing because without that being released from her it would have just driven her down further and further and further. And like that wet earth that was pressing in on us in that pit, it was pressing in on her and let me just tell you, when it comes to these things, if you pretend that they're not there, if you just drive them down, if you look for distractions to try and turn your mind to other things, they don't go away, they're still there, they still press in upon us, they need to be dealt with. And maybe I'm uh, over-dramatising a little, perhaps not, but such was the desperation that we see in this person here in Psalm 130, the same kind of desperation that some of us have experienced where the only thing we can do is cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Look up and cry out to God because I cannot do it in this space myself. Let me talk for a couple of moments about uh, three quite different types of guilt in the hopes that we might be able to bring some release for someone who even here today may be in that space. The first kind uh, of guilt is what we call objective guilt. Objective guilt uh, is the kind of guilt that I think the psalmist is expressing. It's the guilt that we all carry because we've all rebelled against God, right? And God has pronounced judgment on sin. Doesn't matter whether we feel like we're sinners or not, it's objective, it's there, it's real, 
uh, it has to be dealt with. I remember a few years ago when I was working with some 12-year-old boys who are amongst the most difficult group of young people to work with, um, 12-year-old boys, they're fantastic, I love 12-year-old boys. Um, we were talking about sin and guilt and all this kind of stuff and one young guy was there and he said, I've never done anything wrong in all my life. <laughs> I said, amazing, I wish I was your dad. No, that's not what I said. I said, really? Are you sure you've never told a lie? No, I don't think I've ever told a lie. Never done anything that God would be kind of concerned? No, nothing like that at all. Very interesting conversation. And I said to him, you know what? If I went out onto the highway out the front of the church here, it's a 60k zone, uh, and I drove down that, um, that uh, road, let's say Melrose Drive here, and I was doing 100 kilometres an hour, have I committed a crime? Yes. But if I don't feel like I've committed a crime, have I still committed the crime? Yes. You see, with objective guilt, with the guilt that we carry because we've rebelled against God, it doesn't matter whether we feel it or not, it's there and it needs to be dealt with. Objective guilt is described in passages like this. Let's just run around a few passages that will be well known to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, which says, There is no one righteous, not even one. The book of Romans is actually a great place to plunder our understanding of objective guilt because Paul just punches the Romans fair in the nose with this one. In Romans 2 he says, in Romans 2 verse 5, if you want to follow this, he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his, just, his righteous judgment will be revealed. God is a righteous judge and uh, the guilt that we feel in that space because of sin is what we call objective guilt. Now, there's good news in this space, really good news in this space. The good news is that we don't carry this guilt because the condemnation for sin that we deserved has been taken by Christ. True? You're not sounding very convinced about this. Well, let me try and convince you. The, the condemnation that we deserve because of our sin is not ours to carry when we have repented and confessed it to Christ because he's taken that from us. True? Yes, absolutely true. In Christ there is forgiveness. And that is entirely consistent with what the psalmist understands here in this psalm. With you, verse 4, there is forgiveness and therefore you are feared, is what my translation says. Others say something slightly differently. So there's objective guilt. Then there is what we call subjective guilt. Now, while our guilt before God is objective, this ongoing reaction that we have to doing wrong, what we might sometimes call our conscience speaking to us, is what we call subjective guilt. It's the guilt we feel when we, stepped over, uh, when we have stepped over a line. Subjective guilt was what I felt uh, in that moment when I tried to sell the golf course, right? Because I'd stepped over a line. I knew better than to do that. Subjective guilt is terrific if our conscience is accusing us of wrongdoing and we act to remedy it. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, Paul says, Now I am happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. You see how subjective guilt works? If we feel guilty about something and we act to remedy, it leads us to repentance. That is good. That is really good. But let me just say, if subjective guilt is not dealt with, it acts like cancer in the soul. 
It will make you sick. It will kill you emotionally and spiritually, if not physically. And in this space, if this has been part of your experience, if some of the stuff that I've talked about today has raised stuff for you, then the posture of the psalmist is absolutely essential. For in verse, um, uh, sorry, verse 5, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. In his word I put my hope. His word says this in John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, you know how this goes, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from unrighteousness. His word says if we are feeling this burden of, of subjective guilt and we confess it to the Lord, he will take it from us because he is righteous and just and will forgive us our sin. That was the manner in which that young woman who'd had the abortion dealt with the guilt that weighed upon her. That's how God released her from the pit. It's worth going to Proverbs 28 verse 13 which says, Whoever conceals transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Objective guilt, subjective guilt and the third one's false guilt. Now false guilt can take a couple of different kind of shapes. Here's an example of of classic false guilt. I was travelling one time with a friend of mine whose name was James. Uh, we were in Bangkok travelling back to Port Moresby. We arrived at the airport in plenty of time to travel and we had to put our bags through, uh, what do you call those things, the, uh, the X-ray scanners. We had those in Port Moresby too. They never worked but, but at least we had them. And in Bangkok we put them... Now James was a guy who travelled very light, let me say. He was... Um, he was not a small guy by any means, but whereas I would have a suitcase and be running up to the 18 to 20 kilos, he'd just have a bit of hand luggage. I reckon he only had a change of... Uh, I'm not even sure that he did actually have it. <laughs> well, you can use your imagination, but anyway. Um, and on this particular day, we got to the airport, we put our bags through, mine went through, they looked at it, and I thought, this is really interesting. I'd love to actually see what the person who's doing the scanning is seeing. So I walked around just so I could see the screen. And it's fascinating, you know, it's nothing like um, you imagine, although nowadays we see it on telly all the time, but in those days we didn't. Uh, and you could see the stuff going through, and then James' bag came through. It was only a little bag, about so big, just a small hand luggage suitcase that he took on as hand luggage, and it went through. And then it went back. Then it went back through again. Because as they were examining it, it looked for all the world like he had a handgun in his luggage fair income. I couldn't believe it. There's a guy I was travelling with. He's got a pistol in his bag. Well, it wasn't actually a pistol. It was his, car, his keys. He had a set of keys. I don't know why because he had nothing to open or close in Bangkok. But anyway, um, he'd just thrown them in and the way they'd fallen in, they had fallen just in the shape. And of course, in the x-ray, it showed up like this. And of course, the guy, you know, the, the Thai guy was looking at it and going through and then reversing it backwards, forwards, kind of close up, zooming in a little bit more. James is standing there and he had done nothing wrong, right? He'd put his keys in his bag, he had nothing else apart from a change of maybe, a change of underwear or something. Uh, but he was, he was dripping perspiration because he was feeling guilty all of a sudden. Over what? Nothing! False guilt. You ever been in that space? You know, you know you've done nothing wrong but it seems like the world thinks you might have, as it turned out.
Just to finish that story, James was asked to open his bag. I didn't see the guys with guns come or anything like that, but uh, he explained, well, it's just his car keys. Off we went, back to Port Moresby. False guilt. The other kind of false guilt, the kind of false guilt that we really need to address today is the guilt that we have had dealt with by God but that we re-grab. Or it's the guilt that we have had in the past that has been dealt with by God but Satan says, oh yeah, but have you really been forgiven? Have you really been set free? Have you really dealt with this kind of stuff? Because one of the strategies that Satan consistently uses is to grab hold of past sins and try and condemn us. It's one of his strategies, he loves to remind us of our sin or our failure, that God has forgiven, that God has redeemed. Now if we jump to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, for example, it tells us there that God chooses not to remember our sins. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? God doesn't forget, like somehow he's got a a bit of um, celestial dementia or something like that. He's not like that. God chooses not to ever use those things to condemn us because they've been dealt with. They're in the past. They've been done. But Satan, oh, he loves to try that. He loves to heap false guilt on us for sins that God chooses not to remember and feel rotten. By contrast, and this is the important contrast we need to get hold of, the Holy Spirit convicts us And there's a difference between those two things. Satan uses stuff to condemn us. The Holy Spirit uses things to convict us. And the purpose in those two activities is completely different. Because Satan uses stuff to condemn us, to try and convince us that we are inadequate or that we are failures or that God's forgiveness is not complete, that I will never be good enough for God. I've talked to people, and you might have talked to people too, who said, oh, I've done so much in my life, how could God ever forgive me? That's kind of Satan talk. By contrast, the other side of this is the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. Convicting, convicting is actually a remedial process. Convicting is actually intended by God to bring us to that point of humbling ourselves and repenting and asking God for forgiveness and for restoration. Totally different, aren't they? And sometimes we're not sure which is which. It's important to understand forgiveness. Condemnation, just as a kind of a litmus test, is often quite vague and makes forgiveness seem out of reach. Conviction tends to be much more specific and pushes us towards Jesus. And it's important to understand the difference. We've touched... uh, already on the theme of waiting in this psalm we won't um, dwell (laughs) we won't dwell there any longer there's almost a conflict isn't it we won't wait on that verse for much longer Um, but in verse five it is worth just highlighting where the psalmist says my soul waits a demonstration of trust in god and in his word i put my trust and in respect of guilt and forgiveness, the word of God says this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And the psalmist recognised that there was forgiveness for sin in God and it's based on God's unfailing love. So the message today is this, if you are living with guilt... God invites you to be free from that. 
and there's every chance as we've talked about some of these things, some of you have thought about some of your own experiences of life and there are occasions, there are occasions when that will sit heavily upon you and God says, I'm here today to help lift that from you, whatever it might be. We're going to take a few moments to pray in just a moment but if there is stuff that is uh, sitting there for you, subjective guilt uh, that needs to be dealt with, The Holy Spirit says to you today, don't leave this place with this business unfinished. Don't go from this place without spending some time in prayer with someone, quietly on your own, with a trusted friend, with one of our prayer team. We've got a couple of people who'll be praying today. Don't let this guilt that Satan just so wants to use to bring condemnation be your constant companion. Can I invite you to pray with me? Let's do that. Father, we thank you again for your word and again for the experience of the psalmist who uh, in his guilt cried out to you and we see in that a demonstration of the activity that we too need to do. But Spirit, we know today that there are people amongst us who have continued to carry a load of guilt that is not theirs to carry because it's been on them for so long and it's just not... uh, What do we do with that, God? We don't know what to do sometimes. It's just like being in that pit where no matter which way we look, it seems like there's no resolution. Lord God, today we pray in the context of our gathering where we have opened your word, where your spirit is at work, where you are present with us, do your work of reconciliation, of redemption, of healing, we pray. Lord, it's true there's so many times we just bury this stuff So many times we pretend that there are things that have happened that just didn't happen, that somehow we'll manage, we'll get on, we'll be right. And yet, Father, they continue to haunt us, they continue to weigh us down, they continue to sit upon us as a heavy burden. Lord, speak to those today who in this place are feeling that. Lord, to those who are struggling with the burden of broken relationship, those who are looking back at the past and feel the burden of stuff from the past that has been painful and never resolved, those who wish things could have been different, Lord, but just don't know how to make them different. Father, you are the God who makes all things new. You are the God who is in the business of redemption. You are the specialist at bringing life from ash. And so we humble ourselves in this place today. Holy Spirit, we would pray today that you would continue the work that you have started, that you would give us the courage that we need to partner with you because we know, God, when you do a work in us, it will be a work of good outcomes, it will be a work that will bring life, it'll bring health, it'll bring lights, not heaviness, not darkness, not shame, not humility, not humble, sorry, not, not humiliation, no more guilt, it'll set us free. Lord, we just uh, humble ourselves before you today. And let me say, as we conclude our prayer, folks, if there's anyone that would like to speak more about this, Matt or myself will be available today through the week at any time that's convenient for you as we're able to make that arrangement. Some of our elders are here amongst us today. We've got folks who are prepared to pray with you today. Don't go and leave stuff that needs to be dealt with uh, for another day. And finally, too, if there is... uh, a person here who has heard uh, this claim that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour today has experienced that objective guilt, the guilt before God, knowing that, uh, that uh, I have turned from him, I have rebelled against him, and you want to address that, then today is the day to do that too, to turn to Christ, 
to be done with pride, to be done with pretense and to seek his face. Let that be your decision today too. God, we commit our prayer to you, our time of worship, our gathering now as we continue to fellowship together into your hands and pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.